If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, and it looks like we're kind of running out of road here. It looks like uh, we'll finish chapter 15, which leaves us only one chapter left. So this week, chapter 15, next week, a Christmas message, and then it looks like we'll wrap up, Lord willing, 1 Corinthians on the, the 1st of, of January. But for now, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to the end of the chapter, page 961 of the ESV Pew Bibles, and continuing to talk about the resurrection. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Scripture that you breathed out. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit so that we are able to see, hear, read, and understand this passage. We want to see the, the meaning. What, what, did, what was Paul saying to the original listeners? And then also, Father, we want to, to see what it means for us today. We, we take that main point. We take the, the big idea of the passage and then we want to see it applied in our own lives. So we accept this as your inerrant word, and we ask for you to instruct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've all heard the phrase, a sure thing. We've heard that before. A sure thing. That means a lock, a slam dunk. Something that is sure to succeed. Have you ever been told something's a sure thing before? There was a man who didn't really know much about investment, and he had an investor friend that did it all the time, and he just never really wanted to get into it. He saw it as too risky, so he, he never did any kind of investing. But his investor friend had been pressuring him some time, and he finally said, look, this is the one. You've got to get in, and you've got to get in now. I'm telling you, it's a sure thing. He said, I'm putting a lot of my own money towards it. Whatever you can do, now's the time. It's a sure thing. And so the man thought, well, all right, I trust my friend. Uh, he seems very confident about this. Maybe I'll just start with a, a small amount and see how it goes. So he did. And you guessed it, within about a day and a half, he'd lost it all. And so he went back and confronted his investor friend, and he said, you told me this was a sure thing. What happened? And he said, well, you know, as sure as, as these things get. That's just the way it goes. God is not like that. God does not lie. When, when God speaks, it's always a sure thing. God's revelation to us is a sure thing. It never fails. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's telling the believers in Corinth that those in Christ will be raised and be given an imperishable body. They will be with God forever in eternity. Now when Paul tells them this, this is a sure thing. He's not telling them that, uh, well, I think this is going to happen. He's not saying, I'm fairly confident this is, this is what it looks like. He's not saying, I hope this is going to happen. He's saying, this is a sure thing, and it's a sure thing from God. It's a lock. It's a slam dunk. 
And because of the resurrection, because of the victory, Paul's going to refer to this, this whole concept as victory, that is ours through Christ, he encourages his readers. And in fact, at the very end of this passage, we're going to see he names two outcomes, two takeaways that should result from, from this sure thing in the lives of believers. So we're going to see what those are, and we're going to see how they're applying to us today. So let's go ahead and read the passage. This is 15, 35 to the end. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it, is not the it, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body, this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's continuing his his teaching on the resurrection, and he begins by outlining that there, there are different kinds of bodies. He, he opens with this, well, but someone will ask, and that's just his way of addressing anyone in the congregation that might not be believing in the doctrine of the resurrection. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So these are the questions from the unbelievers in the congregation, the ones that are doubting or questioning this doctrine. So they're trying to imagine a body that's been in the ground for some time being raised, and they don't 
like that mental picture. They're, they're not comfortable with this idea of the dead raising that seems a little fringe, a little too far out, and not really doable. And we see what's going on. They had decided that this doctrine doesn't work, and since they don't understand it, then, then they have rejected it. Since, since they can't comprehend it, they've just decided that it's, that it's not worth holding. Paul answers in 36 by saying, you foolish person. Now this is a rebuke. And he's charging them with disregarding the power of God. In the Old Testament, the fool was one that, that disregarded and, and disbelieved in the existence of God. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So Paul's saying, the fact that you dismiss the possibility of a resurrection because you can't imagine how it happens means you're, you're really acting like an unbeliever who denies the power of God. Of course God can raise the dead. God is God. He is a great God and a great king. He can do anything. So he turns to some examples. Uh, he says in the second half of verse 36, look, God's given you an object lesson that you're probably very familiar with. Have you ever held a seed in your hand? Well, of course essentially everyone had. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you cast a seed onto the ground, you're not throwing a fully formed plant. You're, fully, you're, you're, you're throwing a seed. But God causes that seed to become a plant, like wheat. God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. So God changes the seed into a fully grown plant, but remember, there are different kinds of seeds and different kinds of plants, and his point here is to say, look, there are different kinds of bodies. God is certainly capable of doing that. It's the same way he continues with bodies and, and flesh, with living animals. Not all flesh is the same, and he goes on to list birds and animals and fish. They're all alive, they all move, they all breathe, but they don't all have the same kind of body. What's his point? God can create and assign any kind of body he wants to to his creatures. And the bodies we have now are not the only kind of bodies that God is able to create. And just as one type of body is, is not fit for all those different examples, we also don't have the one type of body that's fit both for the here and now and the earthly and one type that's fit for eternity. They have to be different. There's different kinds of bodies. And the body that God is going to give his people at the resurrection is different than the body they have right now. They'll still be our bodies, but they will, as Paul says later, be changed. They'll be changed. Uh, verses 40 and 41 introduces heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. This is, again, Paul's continuing uh, illustration of making, he's, he's continuing illustration by making the point that there, there is different glory for the sun, moon, and the stars. He's not saying that our resurrected bodies are going to be shining like the sun or twinkling like the stars or glowing like the moon. He's just saying, look, there's, there's different kinds of glory. There's glory here, there's glory there. There's glory earthly, there's glory heavenly. Same thing, there's glory and splendor now in our earthly bodies. There's going to be a different and greater glory in our eternal bodies. And then he shifts... In 42, a new body in Christ. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. We're going to be given a new type of body that is fit or suitable for an eternity with God, and it's going to be vastly different than the one we have now. And so he begins to contrast 
the differences between what is sown, and he's picking up on the illustration from verse 26, what is sown like a seed versus the plant that's fully formed. So what is sown is our bodies now, what we're in right now. That's what's sown, and what's going to be raised is the imperishable uh, body. So here's the contrast. Now, perishable. Our bodies are subject to growing old, decaying, um, getting sick, dying, corruption. Then, imperishable. Our resurrection bodies will never grow old. They will never wear out. We will never get sick. We will never become weak. Does that sound good to anyone here? I don't, <laughs> that sounds great to me. Um, no more uh, surgeries, no more sickness. Now, dishonor. Man lost much of the glory that he had when Adam fell in the garden. The image of God in mankind was tarnished. It was not eliminated, but it was uh, diminished in the fall. Then glory, majestic honor. We're going to be fully made in Christ's likeness. None of that glory is going to be diminished. It's going to be fully present. Now, weakness. We understand this. Weakness in all its forms, physical weakness and our understanding uh, in, our, in our emotional, uh, psychological, uh, our abilities, we have limitations now in these bodies. But then, power. The way our resurrection bodies will function in contrast to the way they function now, unbelievable. Beyond anything we can imagine. Now, natural. Yes, this is the, the natural earthly body. Then, spiritual. He's telling them they're, they're not going to exist in eternity, in this kind of free-floating, disembodied state. Um, we're also, contrary to some false teaching out there, we're also not going to graduate and be transformed into angels. We don't become different beings. We're still us, and we still have bodies, but those bodies are transformed into our glorious, eternal bodies. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. If there's an Adam and a Jesus, then there's a natural body and a spiritual body. So to make his case, he, start, he cites some scripture from Genesis 2. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And you remember, the way Paul is, if you remember the first part of chapter 15, he's talking about Adam and Jesus, and he's talking about them in terms of representative heads. Uh, as an Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. That's those are our representative heads. It's the same thing here. In Adam, we have a physical life. We have a physical body that Paul's calling a natural body. And the believers at the resurrection will be given a resurrected body patterned after the resurrected and glorified body of Jesus. The last Adam, meaning Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, as the last Adam, gives life by raising all who are his by the power of of his spirit. And I think if we listen carefully, we can hear echoes of Ezekiel 37 in this passage. Remember, Ezekiel 37 was about all about that valley of the dry bones. Uh, Ezekiel was shown a valley of dry bones, and he was asked the questions, can asked the question, can these bones live? Only you know, O Lord. And of course, the bones represent the whole of Israel. And in Ezekiel 37, 5, we read, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. 
And if we were to look at that chapter, we'd see language about rising from the grave. I mean, that's definitely resurrection language. Bones living again, that's, that's a resurrection. He's saying he would cause his people to live again in the original context and return to the land after exile. But we also need to remember breath is, in, in Hebrew, the same word for breath is spirit and wind. And so it's the spirit of God, it's the breath of God, the, this, this wind that enters people and raises them to life. So Jesus is a life-giving spirit or breath in the sense that he raises those who are in Christ by faith to eternal life. We have a new body in Christ, verse 46. Uh, we have a reminder of the ordering of these bodies, first natural, then spiritual, in case we didn't get that. Verse 47, Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, eternally existed. Now, he became incarnate in a moment in time when he was born. He, he took on flesh, but remember, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. And then 48 and 49 are, are essentially saying the same thing. As our representative heads are, so are we. As surely we, as we have a physical, natural body in the image of Adam, so all who are in Christ by faith will have a spiritual, eternal body after the image of Christ. He's telling them, this is a sure thing. If Jesus existed, and if you're in Christ, you're going to have a resurrected body. It's a lock. It's a slam dunk. And then in verse 50, we must put on the imperishable. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, if you remember that language, it says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He used that same language earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, verse 9, where he said, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is his way of gaining their, gaining their attention. He's like, look, you, you want to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Okay, you cannot get there in these bodies. You, you cannot get there outside of faith in Christ and, and what he's going to do to transform your body. These, these physical earthly bodies cannot last in eternity. And here's how it works. Verse 51, we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. But we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So this tells us that, yes, there's going to be some that have died in Christ. We already know that. But this also tells us that there are going to be some that have not died. And that makes sense. Christ is going to return when the earth is going about its business. And at any given point, there's always going to be some believers that are still living. But whether the believer is dead or alive, all believers will be changed. And this change must happen in order for us to inherit the kingdom of God. The change will be fast. It says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It can also be translated as instant. And the word translated here as moment is a word that means something so small it cannot be cut or divided. And an amount of time so fast, so brief, that it can't be measured. That's, that's as fast as this change is going to happen. At the last trumpet, a trumpet blast is usually associated with a call to battle. It's also associated with the return of Christ. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Let's look at a cross-reference. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, saying a lot of the same thing. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So both passages are essentially saying the same thing. He said, whether you're dead, whether you're alive, everybody's going to be changed. Everybody's going to receive that imperishable body at the return of Christ. The perishable body must put on the perishable. And when it happens, it will be a literal fulfillment of Isaiah 25, 8. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up at Christ's return. Remember that we talked about that last week, two weeks ago? The death is the last enemy to be defeated. It will be swallowed up. It will be gone. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is is the law. So why is death's sting sin? Death, physical death, but ultimately spiritual death. Why is the sting sin? Because sin brings death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Well, okay, how is the power of sin in the law? Uh, Paul says in Romans that while the law is righteous and holy and good, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. So the law shows us what is prohibited by God, and then that stimulates our sinful desire to rebel and sin against God. We were traveling on the interstate um, this past month, and we were driving along on the road, and I saw this abandoned building kind of going by on the side, and it was all boarded up with plywood, and if that was all it was, with, with boards and weeds growing up, I probably wouldn't have painted any mind. But in bright orange spray paint, someone had written on the outside of the boards, do not enter. Well, now I want to go in. <laughs> or, What's inside there that you don't want me to go in? I, I probably wouldn't have even given a second thought if it, the sign hadn't been there. And that's what it's like with the law. Romans 7.5 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law where work in our members to bear fruit for death. Victory in response, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does Jesus give us our victory? Well, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus was perfectly sinless. The law has been fulfilled in Christ and the penalty for sin has been satisfied in Christ. Perfect righteousness has been obtained for us in Christ. So those who are in Christ by faith are exempt from the wrath of God. That's how we achieve the victory. It's through faith in the one who accomplished all those things on our behalf. That's how we have the victory in Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, this is a concluding remark, based on everything he said, based on all this talk on the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, based on this sure thing, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So this is his conclusion. This is his takeaway based on the sure thing that we all have in Christ. 
he's saying at the end of all this, this isn't this is good doctrine. This is good, solid doctrine. We need to understand this. We need to believe in the resurrection, understand the resurrection, proclaim the resurrection. But this is up here. This is the head knowledge. To, to get it in our heart and to have it motivated, this is where the rubber meets the road. He's saying, look, this sure thing, this promise that you have from God, this should get you pumped up. This should get you energized. This sure thing, laying hold of this sure thing in Christ, that's what should enable you to stand firm, be immovable, and abound always in the work of the Lord. This is your future. Therefore, this is how it should impact your present. Sure thing. Paul is telling the raw believers in Corinth that they are foolish to disbelieve in a bodily resurrection just because they don't understand it or imagine how it would take place. God is all-powerful. He creates different kinds of bodies for his creatures, and he assigns them as he sees fit. There are bodies for earthly existence. There are bodies for eternal existence. The bodies we have now are perishable and weak, but they will be raised with glory and power. Adam and Jesus, again, serve as our representative heads, and all those who are in Christ will receive a resurrected body, like Christ's resurrected body. Believers, whether dead or alive, at Jesus' return will be changed in an instant and receive an imperishable eternal body. And because of Christ's victory over sin and death on our behalf, and in light of our future resurrection, we should give thanks to God, remain firm in our faith, and always abound in the work of the Lord. Paul's done it for us. He's, he's drawn the application for us, and it is this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of this sure thing, the victory that is yours, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And there are two things here, really. Our beliefs and our actions. This sure thing should impact both. So first of all, our beliefs. Steadfast, meaning solid, fixed, immovable, meaning no change. Remain exactly where you are. And Paul knows that the believers are going to be facing pressures to compromise on their faith and their beliefs. They're facing, uh, we've seen this internal evidence in the letter itself and then from the rest of the New Testament. There are false teachers, there are false prophets that have made inroads into the church. There is the culture around them. There, there are these pagan cultic meals that they were pressured into participating in and pressured into participating in idolatry or to revert back to their idolatry or practice syncretism, a little mixing of both Christianity and paganism put those things together. And we, have, we also face pressures to compromise our faith and the truth of Scripture today. We face pressure from false teaching in print, on the internet. Anybody with a YouTube channel can start spewing out false teaching, and they do. Pressure from the media, pressure from entertainment, pressure from corporate America, Pressure from different levels of the civil government. Pressure from our educational institutions. Pressure from our employers in the workplace. And even pressure from within our own extended families. Paul says, be steadfast. Be immovable. 
steadfast, fixed. He's expecting that this sure thing, this victory we have in Jesus Christ, will be effective, will be useful in remaining firm, steadfast, and immovable against the pressure to compromise. Be steadfast, be immovable. Which means what? Well, in order to be steadfast and immovable in our beliefs, we need to be sure of our beliefs. We need to be sure we know what we know, and we need to be sure we know it's, it's the right thing. What exactly are the doctrines of Scripture? What, what exactly am I supposed to remain steadfast and immovable about or on? There was a freshman who went to college and he got moved into his dorm and everybody else was moving in and he was moving into a dorm that didn't just have freshmen, they had all kinds of you know, different years in college. And after all the parents had left, they started to, to get to know one another and meet different people in the dorm and, and start to find out about you know, who each other was and see if they were going to be friends or not. And uh, he was in a conversation with this, this group of, of upperclassmen and they were talking about all the things that they liked to do and what they were doing this weekend and how they were going to go out and, and drink. And then they looked at him and he said, oh, you drink, right? And he said, well, I don't know. And then before he could go any further, they said, you will. And they were right. By, by that weekend, he was binge drinking with the best of them. It's the same thing with our faith and our beliefs. If we're not sure what we believe, then we're going to be soft targets for the enemy. If we don't know what it is we're supposed to be standing firm and fixed and immovable on, then we're not going to be successful. Show me someone who isn't sure what they believe, and I'll show you someone who's open to believe anything. Be steadfast. Be immovable. We've got to get to know our Bibles. The only thing worth standing on in this world is the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand what that is, if we don't understand what the truth of God is, then we're not going to be able to stand steadfast and be immovable. So number one is our beliefs. Number two is our actions. Our actions. Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding means to exceed what is necessary. To go beyond what is expected. Are we going beyond what is necessary? Are we exceeding expectations for what God calls us to do? And then the other part, what is the work of the Lord? What is the work of the Lord? Prayer, discipleship, Christian growth, evangelism, gospel proclamation, using our spiritual gifts, serving one another, helping one another, showing mercy to one another, hospitality, giving, visiting the sick, caring for orphans, caring for widows, missionary work. I mean, we could go on and on. There are all kinds of things that fall under that label, work of the Lord. In fact, anything we do in the name of Christ can fall under that, that phrase, work of the Lord. And we're told always to be abounding, meaning going beyond what is necessary, in the work of the Lord. Does that sound like it's even possible? To me, I would say no. 
I would say that's not possible to do all those things and all the things I didn't mention always and always to go beyond what is expected and necessary. I would say that's pretty unrealistic. So I think that's not what Paul's saying. Let's, let's find out what he is saying and let's use a couple examples from Scripture. We want to clarify, first of all, what this does not mean and then we can understand what it means. It does not mean that every single believer at all times should always be going above and beyond in every single form of the Lord's work because that's impossible. And even though it's impossible, I've heard some teachers out there, some preachers as well, that occasionally will try to um, guilt trip people into thinking that it is possible and that if you're not doing this and this and that and then those things, if you're not doing all those things all the time beyond expectations, well then you're somehow failing as a, as a believer. How dare you? I'm going to share a personal story. I hope it helps. I remember a sermon preached on Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And this is the the uh, passage where Jesus talks about if you've done any of these things to the least of these, my brothers, then you've done it to me. And he talks about feeding them, clothing them, giving them a drink of water. And the preacher, I think he was a pastor, but he was definitely a preacher, he's speaking to a large group, preached on this passage and he said, if you're not doing each one of these things, if you've not done these things, then you're not saved. This is what Jesus says is the criteria for entering the kingdom of God. And if you haven't done all these things, if you, hasn't, if you haven't clothed someone, if you haven't done this, if you haven't done all these things that Jesus lists, then you're not saved. And I remember thinking at the time, okay, I know that's not right. I, I had heard enough solid, faithful, reformed teaching to know that that was adding to the gospel, that was adding works to faith. But at the same time, it was rather convicting because these were things that Jesus taught that were important and that believers should be doing, and there were some of those things on the list that I hadn't done. And so it was convicting. And I think I fell for that teaching partially. And, and it frustrated me because I wasn't doing you know, this, or I wasn't doing that. Somebody would make known of, of a need, and, and I didn't do that. And so it was, it was depressing, it was frustrating. And in the wake of that, I did try various ministries. I think at some point, maybe even subconsciously, I, I tried to, to do that. So I, I worked with youth ministry. I, I did that. I, I tried it. I, I volunteered at homeless shelters. I worked the graveyard shift. I, I did that. I, I volunteered at, at evangelistic events. I was, I was a helper. I, I went to prison. I, I ministered to, to inmates. I, I tried a lot of these things. I went on short-term mission trips. I thought, surely this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I need to do a little bit of everything. So here's the conclusion. I tried doing a lot of the Lord's work, things that would fall under that. And here's the conclusion. Number one, I couldn't do it all. I couldn't do it all. Uh, everything takes time, and in order to do something well, you need to commit. And you can't commit to everything. Nobody can so that was number one. Number two, I wasn't good at many of those things. I, I tried some of those things. I wanted to be good at it. I was serving the Lord, but I was not that effective. It just wasn't a good fit. I wasn't equipped to do it. 
I wasn't called to do it. So when Paul says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and I'm not just basing this teaching on my personal experience. We're going to get to scripture. I want us to understand, don't, don't think that you have to do it all. Just give your all to whatever you do for the Lord. You see the difference? Nobody can do it all. But everyone can give their all to what they do do for, for the Lord. We're called to abound in the work of the Lord that he has given us, the work he's called us to, the work he's equipped us to, and the work that he's placed in our path. Paul, the one who wrote this, the one who's commanding us to always abound in the work of the Lord, he did not do it all. I hope we understand that. He was always abounding in the work of the Lord, but he did not do every kind of Lord's work. Look at Romans 15, 20. This is Paul. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Wait a minute, you're not going to preach the gospel? No, not where he's already been proclaimed. Paul says, I'm not doing that. That's the work of the Lord, to proclaim the gospel. That's definitely the work. But I'm not doing that in places where it's already been preached. I'm not going to existing churches. I'm not going to build on someone else's foundation that's already been laid. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to do the pioneering work of this unplowed ground of laying churches and making disciples where there is no church. That's what God's called me to do. So I'm not going to do that. But I don't think anyone would charge Paul with not always abounding in the work of the Lord. Or Acts 6, 2-4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see what they're saying? The apostles are saying, we're not going to do everything. We're going to always abound in the work of the Lord, but we're not doing all and every work of the Lord. We're going to do this well. We're going to do what God called us to do, what he equipped us to do, what he's gifted us to do. That's what we're going to do. We're going to give it everything we've got, but we're not going to do every single thing that's out there. So don't think you have to do it all. Just give your all to whatever you do for the Lord. Now please don't use this as an excuse to say no to whatever you don't want to do. I'll trust you won't do that. And please don't use this as an excuse to say no to anything that's not in your comfort zone. Because there are some times when we just have to do it, right? Sometimes the Lord places something in our path and, and it would be disobedient not to do it. So we're not going to use this as an eject lever to get out of whatever we want to do. But we do need to understand, please don't fall for the guilt trip. It's very effective. Some people are very persuasive. I, I, I very clearly remember some people saying, look, missions, this is the work we're called to do. This is number one. And then somebody else would say, no, teaching your children the faith of the Lord, that is your most important work. This is what you're called to do. Oh, okay, I guess I'll go do that. No, over here, this is what we're called to do. Train other people, discipleship. Can't you see that? This is the most important work. And I, you can just get yanked by the chain if, if you're not careful. That's not what Paul means. Always abounding. Do everything you can for the Lord when he calls you to do it. A sure thing. So the whole point of being told something is a sure thing is to communicate 
to the person or if you're told it's a sure thing. The whole point is to, to eliminate any kind of deliberation, right? If someone says, look, this is a sure thing, they're trying to tell you, don't even think about it. You don't, you don't have to weigh the pros and cons. You don't have to make uh, a long list of, of you know, what's going to happen if you do or what kind of risk. It's a sure thing. Just do it. Pull the trigger. Go. That's what a sure thing is, is supposed to, to do. It's supposed to assure you to go ahead and make a decision because it's sure to succeed. When it comes to Jesus Christ and the gospel, we need to remember this is not a friend telling us to invest in some kind of stock. This is God. When God tells us something, it's always a sure thing. He's never wrong and he could never lie. Trust in Jesus Christ because the cross is a sure thing. If there's anyone here this morning that's not in Christ, this is one of those things where you don't have to deliberate. You don't have to think about it. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. It's a sure thing. If you trust in Christ, he promises to forgive your sin and you will inherit the kingdom of God. All these things that we just talked about are yours in Christ by faith. There's nothing you can do to please God. There's nothing you can um, do in life to, to live a good enough life to please God. You have to raise the white flag, surrender, and say, Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in him alone for my salvation. That's a sure thing. You do have to count the cost. But you don't have to weigh whether or not God's telling you the truth. And if you're not in Christ this morning, then you need to know that the, the alternative is also a sure thing. God, God assures us that if you do not turn to Christ, you will have to pay for your own sins in the lake of fire. That's also a sure thing. But for those of us who are in Christ this morning, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, this passage is a sure thing and it calls us to keep trusting in Jesus. And this sure thing and this victory that we have in Jesus Christ is suitable to motivate us to live for him in the present. It is, it is enough to remain steadfast and immovable on our beliefs and it is enough to make sure we are always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing your will to us. You have not left us in the dark or in the fog to guess at where we should place our faith. We are to place our faith in our King, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the sure thing of the resurrection. We thank you for the sure thing of the victory that belongs to everyone who places their faith in Christ. And we ask that you would need that into our hearts and minds and allow that to be the motivation for remaining firm on your word and for abounding in, in your work. In Jesus' name, amen.